0: Father, we settle our hearts now and uh, we've put our mind in the right framework and hopefully our heart as well with lifting up this music to you. We know that you hold people accountable for every word and the words that we've just declared we don't mind being accountable for because we, we speak truth when we sing those phrases. Father, we've had a lot of activities going on in our life this last week things that are in the past that we can't retrieve, but nonetheless, they occupy our mind. And there's things in the week ahead of us, Father, that occupy our mind that are yet to happen. And many times coming into an auditorium like this, we have so much on our mind, it's hard for us to see through the fog and the cloudiness. So, Father, I ask for every person in this auditorium And for the children downstairs in their classes and the adults in their classes, that you would clear our mind of the clutter, allow us to set aside the things of the past week and the things that are yet to happen so that we can be fully present. God, I ask that your spirit would open our minds, give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear, that we might find personal application for these truths that you want to reveal to us. God, I ask that you would speak to your church now. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. January 1st, 1863, Abraham Lincoln signs into law the Emancipation Proclamation. Emancipation Proclamation setting free all the slaves, individuals that were held in bondage in the United States. Immediately, the states that were in compliance in the Union Army area, the northern states, had no reason to rebel. The southern states had reason to rebel because they held slaves captive. Now in September of 1862, Abraham Lincoln warned the southern states, I will be signing into law the Emancipation Proclamation. You have from September to January to comply. None of them did comply So 1863 unfolded on January 1st, Abraham Lincoln puts his name to the declaration, which is the Emancipation Proclamation. And as a result of that signature, people around the world gave Abraham Lincoln the title, the Great Emancipator, the one who set people free. However, I'm convinced that because Abraham Lincoln was a follower of Jesus, he would gladly yield that title and step back and say, I'm not the great emancipator. The great emancipator is Jesus. He's the one who proclaimed the original emancipation proclamation. As a matter of fact, I'd like you to see the original emancipation proclamation. You try and say that three times really fast. I'd like you to see that on the screen because it comes from Luke 4. These are Jesus' words, the original emancipator. Luke 4:16 Speaking of Jesus, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, "The spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed." Abraham Lincoln and every nation around the world based their motivation to free slaves on this document right here. That's where it originated from, the recognition that men should not own other men. However, Jesus is talking about something bigger than men owning men or men owning women. The Emancipation Proclamation Jesus is speaking about is different completely than just freeing someone from the chains that hold them. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And in order to help you understand that freedom that we experience, I'm going to go back to where we were at last week, just a brief couple minute review to help you get caught up to speed. Look with me up on the screen at John chapter 8 and verse 21. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up there this morning. We're going to finish up the book of John chapter 8 this morning, not the entire book, just John chapter 8, okay? It's taken us three weeks just to get through chapter 8, all right? So look with me, and I'm going to review with you where we left off last week. The first thing we saw was Jesus said this, verse 21, Then he said again to them, I go away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So we discovered last week that individuals in an unconverted state absolutely are incapable of standing in the presence of God. If you're not converted, you can't stand before God. So all the way down in verse 30, by the time individuals heard Jesus say all this, they began to realize they needed to do something about it. So verse 30, we saw that many came to believe in him. They responded to what he had to say. However, what I'm deducting from looking at this passage is is that many of them did not yet have a complete faith. They had head knowledge, but did they have complete knowledge? Did they have saving faith? Were they at the point where they're completely prepared to yield their life to Christ? See, it's a very dangerous place to be, and we talked about this last week, to be in the place where you have head knowledge. You know who Jesus is. You agree to the facts. You assent to the fact that he was a real historical person, and that he died on the cross someone even go so far as to say that he died for sins but they wouldn't necessarily claim him to be their savior and lord so we're told that even the demons believe in god and shudder so intellectual knowledge is not enough james 2:19 says the demons also believe and shudder so individuals are capable of having mental knowledge intellectual understanding So belief is the initial point of contact. First contact with Christ, you believe in him. But Jesus said there's a measuring rod by which individuals can gauge where they're personally at. And it comes from verse 31. This is where we left off last week. If you continue in my word, he said you are truly my disciples. If you continue, if you dwell, if you abide in my word. In other words, you make your life God's word. Where you dwell, where you live, your personal home is where you make your life. And Jesus is using that same analogy here. You dwell in my word, you are truly my disciples. And as a result of this total commitment, there's something that comes along with it. Absolute freedom, limitless freedom. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Verse 32, Jesus followed up by saying, If you are truly my disciples, you're going to abide in my word, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So you will know is a big phrase when he uses that. I'm going to explain that word to you in just a minute, the word know. We come to know truth not simply through intellectual knowledge, but through experiential knowledge, experiencing God. And as a result of experiencing the truth, the truth is, will make you free. And Jesus is saying, if you continue in my word, if you hold on, if you abide in it, and it's a measure of your genuine faith, how sincere you are about it, there's a result. There's a promise that comes along. There's a reward. You're going to know freedom in a way that you've never known it before. You're gonna know that you know that you know it. That's why Jesus uses such an emphatic word. When he uses the word no, it's the word genosko. I want you to see this on the screen. The definition for it is very powerful. It's absolute. You're aware of it. It's not just intellectual. It's something that you're personally experiencing it. You perceive and recognize it. So it's not just head knowledge. It's heart knowledge. It's an experience of the emotion. So I'm not gonna put John 8.31 on the screen because I want you to look at it in your own Bibles as well. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, they're in the pew racks there in front of you. You can look personally at it and I'm gonna reconstruct this sentence so you see it the way that Jesus said it. John 8.31 says this, so Jesus was saying, if you men know, if you continue, in other words, if you dwell in my word, If you dwell in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will genosco the truth. You're going to perceive it. You're going to understand it. You're going to experience it. And it's going to be part of your life. And as a result, the truth will make you free. Now, you might want to ask yourself, okay, free from what? I mean, it says I'm going to be free from what end to what end? What am I free from? Now the only reason Jesus would say someone needs to be set free is if they're held in bondage, right? I mean, you're not going to free somebody that's not a captive. So the assumption is that someone is being currently held as a prisoner. So what kind of freedom is Jesus talking about? Well, let's look at the word that he actually used, eleuthero. This Greek word means something very significant when Jesus is talking about freedom. To liberate, that's one part of it, but I love the second part. The second part says this, to be exempt from liability. Now imagine if you're one of the many American citizens who happen to have a home on which you have a mortgage and your mortgage bank calls you. Let's say tomorrow you get a phone call and your bank says to you, Um, We we would like you to know that uh, across the entire nation of all the mortgage accounts that we hold, each year we draw one name out of the hat and we decide that we're going to let that person be exempt from their mortgage. In other words, we're going to eliminate their mortgage. And by the way, we've drawn your name out of the hat. Would that not be a great phone call to get? Okay? To be completely free? That's what Jesus is talking about. Meaning, you have no more debt. This word Luthero, this kind of freedom that he's talking about, is talking about complete, complete liability removal from your life. You're exempt from any liability. So when he says, I'm making you free, you'll be free indeed. It's freedom like no one else has ever known before. Now, the nature of the freedom depends on the nature of the slavery, right? In other words, if you're a slave to drugs, you'd like to be free from drugs. If you're a workaholic, maybe you don't recognize it in your own life, but others would like to say, I wish that so-and-so could be free from their workaholism. So We're all slave to something because it's human nature to bind ourselves up with things. So the nature of the freedom depends on the nature of the slavery. Now, you might emphatically deny a statement in which someone says to you, you need to be freed from your bondage. Because if you've never been held captive before, perhaps you don't think that you're in bondage. I want you to see the kind of freedom Jesus is talking about because it's multifaceted. I don't know if you've ever put the pieces of Scripture before together to see what Jesus is referring to, but I did that in your notes this morning and I want you to see it on the screen as well. You're going to be free from some bondage as a result of following Jesus, but what kind of bondage? Well, let's take them on one at a time. First of all, from Satan. The power that Satan has over this earth, those who live under his power when you name the name of Christ you become a follower of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4:4 4, 4 says he's the god of this world and he's blinded the world. But a true Christ follower is free from the power of Satan. Second one, condemnation. Romans 8:1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a powerful one in itself, is it not? Is it not? Absolutely. I mean, one, is great, be free from Satan. Two, condemnation, you cannot be condemned. That's what Scripture's telling you. If you are in Christ Jesus, look at the next one, judgment, John 3.18. He who believes in him, meaning Jesus, is not judged. So when you read about judgment in Scripture, the great white throne, that's talking about those who do not belong to Jesus Christ. But those who belong to Jesus are not judged because your sin is no longer held against you. Look at the next one, spiritual ignorance, John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. That's a great freedom. You're free from spiritual ignorance. And look at the last one because this is really a capstone. Romans 6, 18, having been freed from sin. Now, I had somebody approach me after the nine o'clock service saying, well, wait, wait. I'm trying to get that one in my mind because Romans 6.18 says, I'm freed from sin if I'm a follower of Christ, but I still have sin in my life. I still commit sinful acts. Well, yes, we're part of a fallen world. We will make mistakes. We will commit sin. But you stand completely clean before God because of the work of Jesus Christ. What he did in your life made you free from sin. It is not imputed against you. You are free from judgment if you stand in Christ. So that's what we're talking about here. You are freed from it being held against you. Now remember the setting. This group of individuals whom Jesus has in front of him at this time, they're the chosen people. These Jews are convinced that they're whole. They're convinced that they're already free. They belong to Abraham's lineage. They believe that they're kingdom people and therefore they're thinking, we don't need any emancipation. So they turn on Jesus with a really Ugly, challenging tone to their voice. The way that this is structured in the Greek language is they're in his face. This goes on in verse 33. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? See, they see themselves as sons of the kingdom. They believe they don't need anything else. They don't need release. So they're secure in their identity they would say, we're good enough. Many Americans would say, I'm an American, so therefore I'm a Christian by heritage. I was born in America. It's a Christian nation. And so many individuals are convinced they're good enough. So these individuals are furious with Jesus because he's implying that they're in bondage. Now watch his response because it's simple and it's devastating. Go with me to verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Now let's take that passage apart word by word, because there's some really powerful stuff going on there. First of all, Jesus uses this phrase that you've learned through the book of John, amen, amen. When he says, truly, truly, I want you to see the definition on the screen. Amen, amen means something of enormous importance is about to be stated. What I'm about to say is huge, so pay attention and listen very closely. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Now that may be very familiar to us, but that's the first time it had ever been stated. So Jesus is making it very clear to these individuals who believe they have this righteous heritage, that they're good enough, that they're actually still in bondage. The word commit is the key word you want to really focus in on. If you don't mind writing in your Bible or circling, you might want to circle that word and write next to it present tense, meaning... The way that this is stated is saying that this is an ongoing lifestyle. These are individuals who are actively committing sin on a regular basis, not a one-time accidental, oh, I wish I wouldn't have lost my temper, or I shouldn't have done that. He's talking about individuals in the word commit, present tense, as though it's a life principle. They're carrying it out constantly. Now, this is a vicious circle for individuals who are in this lifestyle of sin because not only does the practice of sin prove that someone is enslaved to it, but the practice of sin continues to enslave someone. So it's vicious in its nature. You keep going on, it's repeated. James, or 2 Peter 2.19 said, By what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So here's what Jesus is telling you. The ultimate bondage is rebellion to God. This word commit means someone who stands opposed to God, who's never yielded their life to him. And they're saying, I kind of like my life the way it is. Don't ask me to do that. I don't want to go there and leave that lifestyle behind me. I'm good with where I'm at. So Jesus uses this kind of obscure statement when he talks about the son being in the house and the slave not always being in the house. You see that phrase up there at 35? The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. In the first century, especially in the first century, Slave ownership was so common that individuals bought and sold slaves as a common commodity. If you had a debt against somebody that you were doing business with, you could send your slave over to the person you had the debt against in order to pay your debt. So slaves were commonly exchanged and traded. If if this was first century A.D. right now, you could go down to the corner of Marsh and Hazlitt Road and find a slave auction block. Men trading men, women selling women. So Jesus is using something very familiar to them when he uses this analogy. However, the deal is this. A slave being actively bought and sold had no guarantee that the house they were in was the house they were going to be in next week. But Jesus is saying the son, one who's the biological son, the one that belongs to the father, he remains in the house. So here's the promise. The son belongs to the house forever. You can't change your lineage. But the slave can be bought and sold. So Jesus, as a follow-up to that, reiterates the exact same promise when he says in verse 36, the son whom he makes free will be free indeed. Because why? Because Jesus, as the son of God, rules over the house of God, according to Hebrews and whom the Son makes free, those who are in slavery, you will be free indeed. The Son has authority to release those who have put their faith in him. So Jesus has taken you from a position of slavery, one who was in bondage, At the moment that you yielded your life to Christ, he took you from that position and made you a son, a joint heir, a daughter, a joint heir with Christ. That's what we're told in Romans 8.16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Is that not a great place to be? If you name the name of Christ You're a joint heir, and that can't be taken away from you. It remains forever. That's what Jesus is telling us. Now, back in verse 33, there was a very clear statement made that those who abide in my word, those are truly my disciples. There's kind of a scary statement made here in verse 37 now. Verse 37 says this, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me, Because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Now, here's why it's kind of unclear and scary to me. I'm not entirely sure. Is he talking to this group of individuals who just profess that they believe him? Or is he talking to a group of Jews who have rejected him? Or does he have this mixed crowd of both believers and non-believers in front of him? But in either case, he's saying, my word has no place in you. He's looking in their heart, and he's challenging their integrity of their belief. Because of this phrase, has no place is the word kloreo. In Greek, it's just one word we use in the English language as a statement. But see the definition on the screen? Kloreo, meaning has no place means my word is not advancing in you. It's making no progress. It's not going forward. So what's going on here? They're rejecting Jesus' teaching. They're rejecting his word. And so Jesus is saying, you're paying no attention to my teaching. It's not penetrating any deeper than head knowledge. You've got it in your head, but do you have it in your heart? Now, this next passage, you want to remind yourself to never get into an argument with God. Job tried. Isaiah never even went there. He just kind of shuddered in disbelief of what he was seeing. These individuals proved that the same principle still carries over. Go with me to verse 38. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. So they're not going to let it go now. They keep advancing the argument. And what are they saying? They're saying, we measure up. We've got this heritage, a spiritual heritage that's been handed down to us from our fathers. Who are you to say that we don't measure up? But there's a huge discrepancy between their actions and what they're claiming as their heritage. Jesus is saying, Abraham was not a murderer, yet you're seeking to murder me. Abraham obeyed the truth. You're not obeying the truth. Abraham welcomed God. They're rejecting God. See, their conduct is diametrically opposed to Abraham. So their father must be someone else is what Jesus is saying. So they result now because they realize they're losing the argument. They're going to insults. Watch what happens next. Because when they say, we were not born of fornication, they're saying, we're not illegitimate children. In other words, referring to Jesus' birth. Jesus' birth couldn't be traced, so they didn't understand. And they're thinking, he's a child of fornication. Go with me to verse 42 because Jesus steps it up a notch. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. "'For I proceeded forth and have come forth from God, "'for I have not even come on my own initiative, "'but he sent me. "'Why do you not understand what I am saying? "'It is because you cannot hear my word. "'You are of your father, the devil, "'and you want to do the desires of your father.' He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. The barrage of verbal assaults at this point is reaching concussion level. Because Jesus is saying something very specific here. He's openly calling them children of Satan. Have you ever been in a group setting with a large group of people and have one individual yell out to another individual? You're a liar! I haven't either. I'm sure you've not experienced that. It wouldn't be politically correct, would it? Have you ever been in a room with a large group of people and have someone yell out, you're a child of Satan! That would be awkward, wouldn't it, okay? It wouldn't be politically correct. If someone ever says to you, well, Jesus was politically correct, take them to this passage, okay? Jesus was not politically correct. He called things as they were, and it's precisely because they want to carry out these actions of killing him and not standing in the truth that Jesus refers them back to the Garden of Eden. He says, in the very beginning of time, Satan introduced death into the garden. Satan introduced lies, and mankind has carried it on ever since then because we're fallen by nature. So Jesus next throws out a specific challenge, and it's very detailed. Verse 46 Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. So the specific challenge is this. Provide some legitimate grounds for the charges. The question is this. Can anyone demonstrate that I'm guilty of any sin whatsoever? We're told according to the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, meaning Jesus, knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So if the best theological minds in the world, and the Jews were, they were incredibly studied. If the best theological minds in the world were impossibly trying to gather some convincing evidence to convicting them of sin, and they couldn't do it, should they not step back at that point and reevaluate their position? But they don't. See, there's only one who would dare to issue this challenge. I don't know if in your life you've ever run into someone who said, I have never sinned a day in my life. I've never met anybody who would ever say that. There is only one who could say that. The righteous Son of God. And that's why he lays this challenge out. And they can't find anything. So if he's not guilty of sin, he must be speaking truth, right? So what grounds do they have for rejecting him? So the conclusion is inevitable. The reason you do not hear me is because you do not belong to God. So they've lost the battle at this point and they know they've lost. So what do people do when they're in a debate and they resort They recognize they've lost the battle. What do they do next? They go to name calling. That's what happens next. Verse 48, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me, but I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Jesus' words really clearly hit a nerve at that point. They understood what he's calling them. And so in return, they begin mocking. See, the very worst insult you could give somebody in the first century, if you were a religious Jew, was to call another Jew a Samaritan because they believed they were the dog of the earth. And they're not just stopping there. They're not just saying you're a Samaritan. You're a demon-possessed Samaritan. See, they've got a double insult going on here. Why? Because their theological argument has failed. It's crumbled right around them. Now, in Middle Eastern society, it's really important for someone to maintain their honor. Matter of fact, nations have gone to war when kings have been insulted. But our king ignores their result, their insult. And he just moves forward, ignoring what they said. Go with me to verse 51. Here's that phrase again Amen. Amen, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Now we know you have a demon you think you're greater than Abraham and they exalted Abraham to the highest point so only a demonic illusion could account for your speaking now and they're indignant just who do you think you are and Jesus is going to tell them in just a minute verse 54 Jesus answered if I glorify myself my glory is nothing it is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God And you have not, not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And so Jesus steps it up one more notch. If they think they were upset before, when they heard this, the tension in the room really went high. It increases to the next level. Not for this statement. He didn't say Abraham rejoiced to see the messianic day because all Jews, people living at that time, believed there was a Messiah coming at some point. They were all looking forward to that. What Jesus said is, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, me personally. So watch their response, verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So he's exploding all concepts of time that our human mind has. Why? Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus. And yet he's saying, Abraham lived at a time when he rejoiced to look forward to me, and yet, I existed way back before Abraham even lived. How's your mind get wrapped around that? Jesus is making a very clear statement. We looked at it last week. When he said, I am, he said, ego, I. The Greek phrase, the title that's associated with God The one that God was using of himself when Isaiah quoted him in Isaiah 43, 13. Look on the screen. Even from eternity, I am. The same name he gave Moses on Mount Sinai. I am. Jesus uses it again. So the very fact that the Jews pick up the stones to kill him presupposes they got it. They understood exactly what he's saying. I am Jehovah. I am God, and their hatred flares to violence. They go furious, and they're going to take the law into their own hands. And here's what I observe about this entire passage. The grip of unbelief on someone's life is so powerful that even when they have God standing in their presence, Jesus, whom committed no sin, who is capable of all the miracles that you've read about already, who absolutely spoke with the authority of God, even with that right in front of them, they're still consumed with unbelief. And they're looking at irrefutable evidence, and they know they are. This takes us all the way back to where we started in John chapter 8, when Jesus said, if you don't believe in me, you will die in your sin." Look with me on the screen, A 8 John 8:24, 8, "You will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sin." So over the course of these last couple weeks, as we looked at this really intense passage, we see constantly the issue of heaven surfacing who gets into heaven and who doesn't. That's why I played that video last week because there's many individuals who have this little test that they've created. So I put it in your notes this morning and I called it the heaven test. Not gonna put it up on the screen, but I wanted you to look at this because this is the conditions by which most individuals evaluate whether or not they're going to get into heaven. Here's the truth. Every individual has a hope in their life that someday they're going to enter into heaven. Whether or not they belong to a church like New Hope, or they go nowhere to church and they have no interest in the things of God, every individual will respond to this because they think they're going to heaven. No one wants to believe they're not going to. So everyone develops in their own mind some test by which there is a standard set up by who gets in and who doesn't. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but every time an individual draws the lines of the perimeter of who gets in and who doesn't, they always draw themselves within the line. They always believe they're the one who's going. They never draw themselves outside the line. So let's look at the first one. You have it on your notes there. The first one is they've committed no gross sin. Most individuals believe they've kept within the limits of what moral society says are the boundary lines. I'm not that bad of a person. I've never robbed a bank. I've never killed anyone. So most individuals would draw that line and say, that's me. I'm in that test right there. Other ones would be under the second one. They would say, well, the doctrines of religion, whatever religion you ascribe to, that's what's going to get you in. They're all the same as long as you've got good karma. That's what individuals will say. They'll respond saying, well, it matters little which one. Just follow one of them. Now, number three, In opposition, and I mean complete opposition to those first two, is what King Jesus says are the standards. And it decides the issue beyond all possibility of mistake. How does Jesus delineate what true freedom looks like? It's number one in your notes, and I'm gonna put it up on the screen. I wanna be very clear. This is the only one. Unless you believe that I am he, Verse 24 of John chapter 8. That's all it takes. You believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that God resurrected him from the dead. That's what we're told. So when you have number two and number three in your notes and you see them up on the screen, I wanted to show you on the screen the way I really intended them to be in your notes, but I I forgot to remove the numbers two and the number three because number two and number three are not conditions to getting to heaven. So let's look at number two. Number two that I have in your notes, and you'll see it on the screen with no number, is that you're going to continue in his word. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. But you have only this condition, number one, in order to be a believer. And the third one is as a result of continuing in his word, as a result of believing in him, you're going to genosco the truth. And God's word's gonna dwell in you. And it abides and you're going to know a freedom such as you've never known. You are free indeed. Scripture says that your sin is separated from you as far as the east is from the west. Your past is your past. You don't stand in judgment before God if you've been forgiven through Jesus Christ. And as a result of knowing that kind of freedom and leaving all that sin behind you, You live it out in your physical life, your daily activities, because what you believe about God determines what you do next. What you believe about God determines what you do next. So when you know that kind of freedom and forgiveness, you are free to be exactly who God intended you to be. That's the kind of freedom I want you to have in your mind as you go forward into this week ahead of you. A person that lives with that kind of freedom is a force for Christ here on earth. That's what I'm going to ask God to seal in your hearts this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I believe that you've been present all the way through this teaching. I believe you're present through the music. Father, I especially ask that your spirit would be at work right now, sealing these truths in our hearts. That we would never doubt for a moment that we stand before you if we stand clean in the blood of the Lamb as individuals who are free in Christ. Completely free because the Son has said, You've made us free indeed. So, Father, we stand with no condemnation on us whatsoever. We have no guilt because of the washing of the Lamb. Father, we stand as individuals who declare that we thank you for the gift that was given to us when Jesus died on the cross, was crucified for our sins, and was resurrected on the third day, that we might know what complete and total freedom is. Father, remind us of this truth this week as we go out. Help us to declare it in our life, recognizing that we have no condemnation whatsoever. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Amen.